Chapter 13 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. The American Magazine. It is astonishing, considering the enormous influence of the popular magazine upon American literature, such as it is, that there is but one book in type upon magazine history in the Republic. That lone volume is The Magazine in America, by Professor Dr. Algernon Tassin, a learned birchman of the great University of Columbia, and it is so badly written that the interest of its matter is almost concealed almost but fortunately not quite the professor in fact puts english to paper with all the traditional dullness of his flatulent order and as usual he is most horribly dull when he is trying most kittenishly to be lively i spare you examples of his writing if you know the lady essayists of the united states and their academic imitators in pantaloons you know the sort of arch and whimsical jocosity he ladles out. But, as I have hinted, there is something worth attending to in his story, for all the defects of its presentation, and so his book is not to be sniffed at. He has, at all events, brought together a great mass of scattered and concealed facts, and arranged them conveniently for whoever deals with them next. The job was plainly a long and laborious one, and rasping to the higher cerebral centers the historian had to make his mole-like way through the endless files of old and stupid magazines he had to read the insipid biographies and autobiographies of dead and forgotten editors many of them college professors preachers out of work prehistoric uplifters and bad poets he had to sort out the facts from the fancies of such incurable liars as Griswold. He had to hack and blast a path across a virgin wilderness. The thing was worth doing, and, as I say, it has been done with commendable pertinacity. Considering the noisiness of the American magazines of today, it is rather instructive to glance back at the timorous and bloodless quality of their progenitors. All of the early ones, when they were not simply monthly newspapers or almanacs, were depressingly literary in tone, and dealt chiefly in stupid poetry, silly essays, and artificial fiction. The one great fear of their editors seems to have been that of offending someone. All of the pioneer prospectuses were full of assurances that nothing would be printed which even, quote, the most fastidious, end quote, could object to. Literature in those days, say from 1830 to 1860, was almost completely cut off from contemporary life. It mirrored not the struggle for existence, so fierce and dramatic in the new nation, but the pallid reflections of poetasters, self-advertising clergymen, sissified gentlemen of taste, and other such donkeys. Poe waded into these literati and shook them up a bit, but even after the Civil War, the majority of them continued to spin pretty cobwebs. Edmund Clarence Stedman 
and Donald Jean Mitchell were excellent specimens of the clan. Its last survivor was the lachrymose William Winter. The literature manufactured by these tear-squeezers, though often enough produced in beer-sellers, was frankly aimed at the young person. Its main purpose was to avoid giving offense. It breathed a heavy and oleaginous piety, a snug niceness, a sickening sweetness. It is as dead today as Balaam's ass. The Atlantic Monthly was set up by men in revolt against this reign of mush, as Putnam's had been a few years before. But the business of reform proved to be difficult and hazardous, and it was a long while before a healthier breed of authors could be developed and a public for them found. There is not much in the Atlantic, wrote Charles Eliot Norton to Lowell in 1874, that is likely to be read twice save by its writers, and this is what the great public likes. You should hear Godkin express himself in private on this topic. Harper's Magazine in those days was made up almost wholly of cribbings from England. The North American Review had sunk into stodginess and imbecility. Putnam's was dead or dying. The Atlantic had yet to discover Mark Twain. It was the era of Godey's Ladies' Book. The new note, so long awaited, was struck at last by Scribner's, now the century, and not to be confused with the Scribner's of today. It not only threw all the old traditions overboard, it established new traditions almost at once. For the first time, a great magazine began to take notice of the daily life of the American people. It started off with a truly remarkable series of articles on the Civil War. It plunged into contemporary politics. It eagerly sought out and encouraged new writers. It began printing decent pictures instead of the old chromos. It forced itself by the sheer originality and enterprise of its editing upon the public attention. American literature owes more to the century than to any other magazine, and perhaps American thinking owes almost as much. It was the first literary periodical to arrest and interest the really first-class men of the country. It beat the Atlantic because it wasn't burdened with the Atlantic's decaying cargo of Boston Brahmins. It beat all the others because it was infinitely and obviously better. Almost everything that is good in the American magazine of today, almost everything that sets it above the English magazine or the Continental magazine, stems from the century. At the moment, of course, it holds no such clear field. Perhaps it has served its function and is ready for a placid old age. The thing that displaced it was the yellow magazine of the McClure's type, a variety of magazine which surpassed it in the race for circulation by exaggerating and vulgarizing all its merits. Dr. Tasson seems to think, with William Archer, that S. S. McClure was the inventor of this type, but the truth is that its real father was the unknown originator of the Sunday supplement. What McClure 
a shrewd literary bagman did was to apply the sensational methods of the cheap newspaper to a new and cheap magazine yellow journalism was rising and he went in on the tide the satanic hearst was getting on his legs at the same time and i dare say that the muckraking magazines even in their palmy days followed him a good deal more than they led him mcclure and the imitators of mcclure borrowed his adept thumping of the tom-tom muncie and the imitators of muncie borrowed his mush mcclure's and everybody's even when they had the whole nation by the ears did little save repeat in solemn awful tones what hearst had said before as for muncie's at the height of its circulation it was little more than a sunday magazine section on smooth paper and with somewhat clearer half-tones than hearst could print nearly all the genuinely original ideas of these yankee harmsworths of yesterday turned out badly john brisbane walker with the cosmopolitan tried to make his magazine a sort of national university and it went to pot ridgeway of everybody's planned a weekly to be published in a dozen cities simultaneously and lost a fortune trying to establish it mcclure facing a situation to be described presently couldn't manage it and his magazine got away from him as for muncie there are many wrecks behind him he is forever experimenting boldly and failing gloriously even his claim to have invented the all-fiction magazine is open to caveat there were probably plenty of such things in substance if not in name before the argosy hearst the teacher of them all now openly holds the place that belongs to him he has galvanized the corpse of the old cosmopolitan into a great success he has distanced all rivals with hearst's he has beaten the english on their own ground with nash's and he has rehabilitated various lesser magazines more he has forced the other magazine publishers to imitate him a glance at mcclure's today offers all the proof that is needed of his influence upon his inferiors dr tassin apparently in fear of making his book too nearly good halts his chronicle at its most interesting point for he says nothing of what has gone on since nineteen hundred and very much indeed has gone on since nineteen hundred for one thing the saturday evening post has made its unparalleled success created its new type of american literature for department store buyers and shoe drummers and bred its school of brisk business-like high-speed authors for another thing the ladies home journal once supreme in its field has seen the rise of a swarm of imitators some of them very prosperous for a third thing the all-fiction magazine of muncie robert bonner and street and smith has degenerated into so dubious a hussy that muncie a very moral man must blush every time he thinks of it for a fourth thing the moving picture craze has created an entirely new type of magazine 
and it has elbowed many other types from the stands and for a fifth thing to make an end the muckraking magazine has blown up and is no more why this last have all the possible candidates for the rake been raked is there no longer any taste for scandal in the popular breast i have heard endless discussion of these questions and many ingenious answers but all of them fail to answer in this emergency i offer one of my own it is this that the muckraking magazine came to grief not because the public tired of muckraking but because the muckraking that it began with succeeded that is to say the villains so long belabored by the steffenses the tarbells and the phillipses were either driven from the national scene or forced at least temporarily into rectitude worse their places in public life were largely taken by nominees whose chemical purity was guaranteed by these same magazines and so the latter found their occupation gone and their following with it the great masses of the plain people eager to swallow denunciation in horse doctor doses gagged at the first spoonful of praise they courtled and read on when aldrich boscox gas addicts john d rockefeller and the other bugaboos of the time were belabored every month but they promptly sickened and went elsewhere when judge ben b lindsay francis j henney governor folk and the rest of the bogus saints began to be hymned the same phenomenon is constantly witnessed upon the lower level of daily journalism let a vociferous reform newspaper overthrow the old gang and elect its own candidates and at once it is in a perilous condition its stock in trade is gone it can no longer give a good show within the popular meaning of a good show for what the public wants eternally at least the american public is rough work it delights in vituperation it revels in scandal it is always on the side of the man or journal making the charges no matter how slight the probability that the accused is guilty the late roosevelt perhaps one of the greatest rabble-rousers the world has ever seen was privy to this fact and made it the cornerstone of his singularly cynical and effective politics he was forever calling names making accusations unearthing and denouncing demons dr wilson a performer of scarcely less talent has sought to pursue the same plan with varying fidelity and success he was a popular hero so long as he confined himself to reviling men and things the hell-hounds of plutocracy the socialists the kaiser the irish the senate minority but the moment he found himself on the side of the defense he began to wobble just as roosevelt before him had begun to wobble when he found himself burdened with the intricate constructive program of the progressives roosevelt shook himself free by deserting the progressives but wilson found it impossible to get rid of his league of nations and so for a while at least he presented a quite typical picture of a muckraker 
hamstrung by blows from the wrong end of the rake. That the old appetite for bloody shows is not dead, but only sleepeth, is well exhibited by the recent revival of the weekly of opinion. Ten years ago, the weekly seemed to be absolutely extinct. Even the nation survived only as a half-forgotten appendage of the evening post. Then, of a sudden, the alliance was broken. The evening post succumbed to Wall Street. The nation started on an independent course and straightway made a great success. And why? Simply because it began breaking heads. Not the old heads of the McClure's era, of course, but nevertheless heads salient enough to make excellent targets. For years it had been moribund. No one read it save a dwindling company of old men. Its influence gradually approached nil. But by the elementary device of switching from mild expostulation to violent and effective denunciation, it made a new public almost overnight, and is now very widely read, extensively quoted, and increasingly heeded. I often wonder that so few publishers of periodicals seem aware of the psychological principle here exposed. It is known to every newspaper publisher of the slightest professional intelligence. All successful newspapers are ceaselessly querulous and bellicose. They never defend anyone or anything if they can help it. If the job is forced upon them, they tackle it by denouncing someone or something else. The plan never fails. Turn to the moving picture trade magazines. The most prosperous of them is given over, in the main, to bitter attacks upon new films. Come back to daily journalism. The New York Tribune, a decaying paper, well-nigh rehabilitated itself by attacking Hearst, the cleverest muckraker of them all. For a moment, apparently dismayed, he attempted a defense of himself and came near falling into actual disaster. Then, recovering his old form, he began a whole series of counter-attacks and cover-attacks, and in six months he was safe and sound again. End of chapter 13 Recording by Linda Johnson, 